They say, they say we should have known better than to fall so deep down, deep down into this rabbit hole. Get we found. ready. It's time again to venture down the rabbit hole into the world of cybersecurity. You're plugged into the podcast for security leaders and practitioners with a business sense. Prepare for unique interviews, insights, and practical advice that makes your job just a bit easier. And now, please welcome your guides on this adventure, James Jardine and the White Rabbit, Rafalos. Alrighty, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Welcome down the security rabbit hole to yet another edition of the Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. I am Raf, two squares to uh, that Some way. <laughs> I can't do this. I'm so bad at this. Two squares that way is James. Hey, man. How's it going? And uh, the guy, the smiling guy in the middle, uh, returning guest. The uh, Mr. Mr. Cloud Security himself, uh, my my favorite Canadian, uh, Mark. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Thanks uh, for having me on, Raf James. I appreciate the the invite. Hey, is winter over yet in Canada? It's never over. That's our that's our <laughs> new tagline. Winter's never over. Winter's coming. Yeah, it came a long time ago and never left. Uh, no, it's actually it's actually quite nice today, which is good. Uh, but uh, you know, four seasons, well, you got to live with something. I think that's debatable, though, right? Like anybody that says it's quite nice today when they're in Canada, like, it's forty degrees Fahrenheit. Like it's a good day. It's shorts. It's t-shirt weather. We're hitting the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all relative, right? Right. It's absolutely all relative. So. Speaking of relative, all right. So uh, we wanted to. I wanted to talk to you again because it's been a while. First off, um, and, and you have a fancy, shiny new title at a company. Uh, I think a couple of us have heard of. Uh, it's a small little outfit. You want to tell us about it? I think they're a startup. Uh, yeah, about. Uh- Yes, very small, small scale. Um, the so in January of this year, uh, I joined Amazon. Uh, so I'm a principal with Amazon Security um, and dealing a lot with AWS, uh, but other areas of the business as well. Um, which is interesting. It's a it's a shift for me back from I've been in the vendor space for the last. 14 years, 15 years. Um, and this is a chance to go back more into security practice um, and, uh, you know, sort of look at the the day-to-day practitioner side more than uh, the development and, and building side. But there's still some aspects of that as well. That sounds fun. Uh, I, I, we wanted, we wanted to uh, kind of talk through the the problems that arise at very, very big scale. And, and you know, my reference for that is when I used to work at GE and everybody told me, oh, yeah, we've tested this in enterprise scenarios. And I'm like, your version of enterprise or mine? <laughs> right? Because they would – all the vendors yep. be like, oh, it works with up to 10,000. I'm like, all right, so I got 1.3 million. How's this going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's that is something that's very definitive, and it's interesting because I think uh, I was just having a conversation with another friend of mine this morning, and I said, you know, the the thing that always strikes me, especially with junior engineers and developers, is they're like, we're going to build this big, it's going to be global scale, and it's like you have two customers, you probably don't need to build that big, you're taking on more than you need to, um, but yeah, here it's it's sort of the the flip side is because it's a global, lots of different businesses, you know, massive scale, it's literally yeah, okay, if it's not getting out the door. Supporting hundreds of thousands of people internally, then you know you're probably going to have to rethink that. Um, but I think that's really interesting and fascinating because things do change at scale, but some stuff doesn't as well. There's a lot of stuff that's eerily similar. That's interesting to think, though. Like from a developer standpoint, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a developer. You know, I mean, everything was like, oh man, that's Microsoft. Like we should do it like Microsoft, and it's like, you know, that's Microsoft. You know, or Netflix or something like that. And I think you see a lot of that, like a lot of people talk about microservices and all these different things out there that are like, oh, man, Netflix is doing that. And it's like, yes, but Netflix supports way more user base than your little 500 users a day. You know, like, does that make sense for what you're trying to Mm -hmm. do? But it makes it difficult for people, especially newer developers, like you're looking up to the big dogs, you know, but then it's like, well, what they do might not really apply to what I'm doing. It's, It's an interesting facet to that. Yeah, it's 
so this is going to be a weird analogy, uh, but bear with me. Um, so I see you guys, have, we, we've known each other long enough. You know, I probably don't even need to caveat that. I'll caveat that for the audience. It's going to be weird, but bear with me. Um, where I find a parallel is actually with basketball. So if you look at like the NBA, the NBA famously over the last decade has moved to almost always threes. They always shoot a three-pointer. Um, and the reason for that is analytics. So the NBA is actually interesting in that they've released almost all of their shot data and game data for the last 20 years. You can just download it from them uh, in machine-readable format and do a whole bunch of cool stuff around Uh-oh. it. But essentially, no, a whole bunch of smart data scientists figured out that for every phrase. trip that's, down that's the floor, profile picture, as though, long as you're shooting above a certain percentage <laughs> oh, for three, oh, would, you're actually actually ending up with more <laughs> points so three, two, right one, he'll be if back. you go that yeah, route. He'll come right back. Uh, so for see, the case of um, going down <laughs> and if you're shooting like 40% or higher, oh, you that's end how, up that's with, how quick Boomcaster um, sensors. Like Hold on. Yeah, there we go. Do we need to recap that? Yeah. I, I, where, where did you, you said. Uh, we were talking about the NBA. Yeah, you really, they released and okay. poof, you disappeared. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'll start from there. Um so the NBA is a really interesting case because they have like 20 years of shot data from the XY coordinate on the court, who shot it, whether it was successful, the scores, all that kind of stuff. And all that's freely accessible. They've got a pretty generous use license around it, but a whole bunch of people in the community have sliced and diced that. But obviously people working for the NBA teams have as well. And they've done the math. And basically I think it's in, you know rough idea just for the conversation. If you're shooting like 37% or higher for three, it ends up being more worth your time to shoot threes than a simpler shot because your points per trip down the court is like 1.5 versus like 1.3. And over the course of a game, that means you're going to win. Um, right. Crazy. Right. The difference and the reason why I bring this up, though, is I also for a while coached little kids uh, like eight to 12 year olds and their exposure to the game is watching the NBA. And so they're like, cool, I need to be shooting threes. And it's like, whoa, 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 no, guys. No, you don't. Like, A, you can't even get the ball from the three-point line to the hoop. You're tiny. Like, that's just physical growth. It needs to happen. But they had seen this the way the game is played at this really high level, and they chose to emulate that. Totally understandable, totally human. Not at all relevant for their point in their development and the situation they were dealing with, right? Especially for eight-year-olds, if you can bounce it like four times in a row and shoot, period, you're already ahead, right? Yeah. Like, And so I think there's a very definitive parallel in technology. We see talks from Netflix or any of the big companies saying, look, this is how you know we've tackled this problem. And people say, well, that must be a best practice. And well, maybe it is for that scale, but not for your situation. You know, case in point, Kubernetes solves a very real problem, has a very real cost. You need to understand the cost, be willing to accept that cost. And a lot of small companies probably can't accept the cost, but don't think of it that way. They just say, this is what we need to do. I think it's, so that, that's an interesting parallel. Um, you're right. That was a little weird, but it, it definitely got there. Um, <laughs> I came back around. Did, yes, My son plays did. basketball, like it. so it. It was right on with me. I, I thought uh, it was pretty see, good. You could, have made, you could have talked about hockey and I would have been with you there or soccer. <laughs> uh, you're Canadian. So- Same thing hockey, in those sports too. Although you do have the Senators, so. Yeah. yeah. Are they really a hockey team? I mean, le- legally, yes. But performance-wise, no. <laughs> that's like that's like the 1% beer. Like, is it really beer? <laughs> Exactly. It's labeled as such. So, okay. You know, they're trying. They're trying. Yeah. All right. Uh, hey, listen. So this is a, this, this scale thing is interesting because um, <laughs> there is a, there, there is a penalty uh, to trying to build for massive scale at the start. Uh, and especially in security, right? Cause enterprise software, especially on security mm-hmm. is freaking expensive. Um, the, counterpoint to that is there's nothing that's designed for super small <laughs> there just isn't nope. i mean i've been in this you, you and i've been in this industry long let's just let's not talk about how long just a long time some some of this hair is great right <laughs> let's, let's, let's not even talk about it yep. um so like i've never i've never found a good solution for those companies like yeah well, like 300 people what you got and i look at them and go mm-hmm. nothing like nothing, sorry, you can't afford any of it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But eventually, you have to go from uh, where you know maybe not, but most companies. The hope is that you, you as you as you start growing, 
you go from I'm servicing a small population to I'm servicing more to a point like a jumping off point where you're like, okay, now it goes, now the growth goes from linear to like potentially, you know, logarithmic, Mm -hmm. like massive. Um, And what's interesting is that transition's hard. It's not like adding more, it's completely redesigning, right? And I think that's Mm -hmm. where we're, awful at and the my evidence for this is as as nearly every company over the last 10 years uh, has tried to convert into the into the cloud infrastructure it the reality is Mm -hmm. most of that requires a redesign the truth of it is about 60 percent i'd say finger in the air from my personal experience has been let's take these vmware images let's make them uh emis uh, amis and call it done Yeah. Um, so there's a few things in there, um, and they're all they're all really important points. So the the interesting thing is, you know, the the no tooling for small teams, and I mean, there's debates in different areas whether there, there's some, but in general, I think that's that that's a statement that holds up. And the unfortunate reality is, you know, the market economics of running a security business mean that the volume you would have to get for those 300 person businesses make it really hard yeah. right and so obviously you know from business you put your business hat on you're like yeah we're going to go for bigger accounts make more money that kind of stuff but the i think that challenge of making those leaps you know it's you need to be ahead of it because you don't want to wait until you hit that logarithmic and then be like oh we still have tooling for 300 people and now we have a hundred thousand yeah because things break <laughs> all of them and it's break. a question of when do you move for yeah when do you move forward um to get ahead of that curve but i think what really comes down to is a fundamental misunderstanding that the decisions you make are permanent. And that's both on the people side and on the tech side, is that we make these decisions going like, this is our architecture. And really what it should be is like, this is our architecture today. And in a couple of weeks from now, it's going to change. And it may change tiny bits, but it should be constantly changing to adjust to the situation. And that's just not how we think because it's, it's hard. It's really hard to think about that. But if you start to think of it as like, well, this is what we're doing today. This is what we're doing next month. It's not as massive a, a cliff that you hit when you hit those different steps. Um, but again, super difficult to pull off. How difficult so, is that to pull off, though? Because I, I agree, it's difficult to pull off from a leadership perspective, being able to drive that. Because, I mean, I've been at companies before, you know, they're good-sized companies, and they're getting ready to cross that same barrier from just a company perspective. And it's like, great, but all the executives that we have don't have experience at that level. Like, we're swapping them out for to bring in people that have that experience. Yeah. So how do you get to the point where your development teams and your infrastructure and all that stuff are being able to sort of forward look for that and say, hey, look, we might not stay this small forever. How do we prepare and see that change coming? I mean, when you were talking about first, I'm thinking about, I mean, this is kind of like the whole, hey, you know, Windows Server is going to expire sometime. We're going to have to upgrade. And how many people wait until after end of life? And they're like, oh, we got to get past this. We have to have plans to be able to say, how are we going to migrate? As soon as we get on this, how are we going to migrate off of this? You know, we get into this. How are we going to migrate? If we get big, we're not doing it now. But if we get big, what's our change look like to be able to get there? And then add on top of that, technology is going to change in five years when we finally get there. So how do you know, I can't plan for it now because what we're going to do in five years is completely different. Fifteen years ago, I didn't have AWS to go to. With my apps, I would have been still looking at on-prem, how am I going to scale this? It adds a lot. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, and like, it's, there's no easy answer because also what, what we're missing here, too, is people like to have something done. Right. Like I took on the migration to move from Windows version X to X plus one and I finished that project and I don't need to worry about that now for another couple of years as opposed to like, no, we're we're constantly dealing with a, a moving target. And I think we've all been in the industry long enough to know that, you know, we never have enough people. We never have enough resources. So we need to finish some things. We can't just sit there and go like, well, we rolled this tooling out. Now we're just sitting and waiting and growing it. Um so, you know, and your comment about the executive being swapped out is very interesting because that happens happens very often at startup stage, right? We've got the execs who are really good at getting nothing to something, and then the ones who will take something to ten million or right. ten to hundred, whatever the case may be. And when they come in at every stage, inev- inevitably they expect the tooling 
for their stage to be in place, and it's rarely there. And, uh, you know, there's no easy solution for this, but I think where it really comes down to is understanding that you're not in the business of delivering technology or even security for its own sake, and you need to disconnect the things you're building from your feeling of ownership and worth. Yes, you need to be responsible for them, but, like, you can't be the Windows Server guy, Right. And too many teams still are like that. And you see it, you know, Lord help you if you ever do this. But if you look on Twitter and looked at like the Node.js and whatever other JavaScript framework out there, it's like a holy war. And it shouldn't be. It's like, is this solving the problem? And at a certain point, it will no longer solve the problem, move along. But that's really hard because there's so many different factors. And so the answer is there's no easy answer. (laughs) It's just a matter of understanding how people identify how they value their own work, but making slow, small steps is how you get there. And unfortunately, you know, James, your your example of Windows Server is a perfect one where people tend to, as opposed to gradually updating, they're like, we're going to update everything. Right. And you're like, whoa, that's a huge project. And so it's they're like, it's a big project. We don't have budget. We'll push it down, we'll push it down, push it down. And it's, you know, after Microsoft's given them five extensions, and they're still a year after that, as opposed to Here's some critical stuff. Let's update that. Let's move forward. Let's update the next bunch. Which may lead to the whole, we always feel short on people, short on resources, because we wait until last minute. And then it's like, I can't do this now because I've got all this other stuff. Had we been doing that all along, maybe we wouldn't feel so resource constrained. But everything's a last minute fire, you know, so it it makes it feel much more like that. I got to say, this is all giving me. Horrible flashbacks. Um, so, something I find interesting, Mark, and one of the one of the solutions to this uh, solutions that I, that we were promised was cloud computing was going to change all that. It was it was always going to be expansive. Mm-hmm. It was always going to be you can always just move, just just iterate, iterate, iterate. You know, always build for scale and all that. But. Pushing stuff into AWS or the other providers didn't magically get us there. You still had to design and engineer for this. And it's those skills that have been neglected, lacking. I, I don't know which because I'm not in that world every day. But uh, look, I, there's a there's a company that, I, that I'm close to now because uh, 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 I've, I've got friends there that are um, – they're, they're undergoing two very, very painful things at the same time, a shift from data centers to cloud and the, the, actually three things. Uh, at one point, they uh, a couple of years ago, they uh, acquired a bunch of companies. So that's how you get all the clouds, including some I actually didn't even know existed, uh, which is an interesting one. Uh, and then uh, now they're also doing a, a divestiture, a split of the company. Okay. So... Mm-hmm. I can't imagine a more spicy version of hell than that. Um, and it's very interesting and very kind of telling in, in how I, like, IT in general struggles uh, by watching how security in this organization uh, adapts, right? It, because I, I, I've, I've witnessed them try to set policy – try to implement technology, try to implement standards. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that'll be fine. And it's not working anymore. Like it, you just – you turn around and you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to put this brick right here. You turn around like the brick is gone. Where did the brick go? They're like, oh, yeah, we couldn't use that brick anymore uh, because that's the wrong color. Like, okay, fine. Well, here, this one. And like, as you're turning, you see somebody go, nope, that, that's not good either. Like what, what is happening? Um, and so this this – you know, scale problem. I, I think it's a velocity and a volume, and somewhere the third factor is is the kind of the evolution, right? So um, we've learned that technology can't stay stagnant because the company will stop being competitive. So mm-hmm. there's just so much going on. I you know title the episode problems at like massive scale. Massive scale brings its own like because. Tools just weren't like most security tools for companies like you right now, like when I worked at GE for you now, like they're just not designed for that massive of an environment. And so mm-hmm. um, I had a friend of financials a couple of years ago. Yeah, we were going to write our, all of our own tools. And I went, is that really a good idea? 
But like, are you guys stuck writing your own tech? Yes and no. Um, so the thing with Amazon is that obviously Amazon is more like AWS is just one of the lines of business. Yeah. And it on its own is massive scale. Um, and then there's, you know, the dot com, like the store, you go to the website, you buy your stuff. There's the Alexa business. There's the subsidiaries like MGM, like Whole Foods. There's the whole health or like there's it's, you know, it's a large corporation. Um, and like any large corporation, there's a bunch of cultures. There's a bunch of tooling similar to the example you were saying. There's people who are bought in by acquisition. So there's anything and everything you can think of. And I think that the longer I've been at this, the more I've realized that, you know, as much as we draw it up nice in a PowerPoint or an architecture diagram or something like that exists maybe in your mind and has some benefits, but probably hurts you more than it does. So like the tooling, there's never going to be one tool that goes across massive scale for anybody uh, because it's always changing. There's always, uh, you know, customized unique things that are actually unique, not perceived unique, which is a whole different thing. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, if it's exists, it's probably running somewhere in the company because it's just little pockets of people who aren't connected to the greater whole areas where it was like, no, it's easier to buy than build. But there is a lot of stuff that has to be custom built simply because of the scale. So a lot of the AWS tooling in the back end is custom built. A lot of that ends up being um, externalized through services. Um, like a lot of the AWS services that people know started internally. Um, and got pushed out, same you know, out to the out to the customers, um, because it's a mix, and that provides its own challenge. Then, because as soon as you make a tool, now you're like, well, now we have to support this tool, and you know, if you build it internally, and that's where a lot of small companies, you know, that initial example you use the opposite of massive scale, the tiny ones, because there's not a tool that suits their needs when they build their own. That's actually, I think, worse than buying a tool that's too big is because at least when you bought a tool that's too big, you're spending the resource you probably have the most of, which is cash, not time for your people. And locking your team down that's already limited and saying, well, now, Raph, you are going to run this tool. Well, now James is on his own because Raph's maintaining the tool, right? And so we had only two people, which was not enough. Now we only have one. And that's a problem in and of itself. So, you know, there is no answer to, to what you just asked. Nice. It's just a question of like, you make do, and, you know, I think the way to sum that argument up was, and again, this for some reason surprised a lot of people and it was interesting to see the community split, but Figma, I think it was recently uh, mentioned that they had gotten to the scale, you know, $20 billion business with basically a big Postgres backend for everything. And everyone was like, how could you scale to that big? You should have gone to something else forever. And they were like, well, it didn't break. And so, you know, if you put on your like old engineering hat, you go, well, they had a system that was working. They knew where the edges of it were. And they focused their resources on making the UI and the user experience really interesting, which is what moved the business forward. And now that they're finally at a scale where the back end is starting to show its challenges, they you know, made the move to shard it into multiple Postgres installations, um, which I think is a really good business and technology decision that flies in the face of what most people think. Right. And so it's a matter of like what's on fire, what's about to be on fire and what's OK. And that changes every day. Well, that <laughs> it's a matter of going, know, like, OK, let's do this now and not worry about that. We saw that, though. I mean, look at the number of companies still running COBOL and running mainframes of that level. Right. That are still mm -hmm. fully functioning. I mean, I know companies right now yeah. that are still running mainframe. I know developers that work on that stuff that, yes, we've built stuff up around it, but technology was dead 20 years ago, but they're, you know, they're maintaining it because they can maintain that. Now they're getting to that point where it's like, all mm -hmm. right, we're, we, we need to look to start getting off of this thing. But I mean, how long have we been, I mean, mm -hmm. saying that for 20 years, like we need to get off of this and it, you're still maintaining it. Uh, there was a point I wanted to make though, about you, you talked about like the scale and size and, you know, smaller companies, they can either buy over or build their own, but there is also that other category of, go grab open source, right? Which has its own, yep. you know, dilemma, right? Because one, you're probably getting open source and I'd then you're probably build. writing script to integrate yourself. But there's less support. There's less stability to a lot of those sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Where that release comes out and you get the updated version, everything breaks. Now, <laughs> you know, so, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into trying to figure out how do we integrate that? But I wanted to ask on the one point, do people spend, especially organizations, especially when we acquire and do all that, do we spend too much time trying to consolidate, right? We just got, we're on AWS, 
We've got somebody else on Azure. We've got, we just acquired somebody on GCP. Do we spend too much time trying to say, we want everybody on AWS and making those changes that it's not worth the, the, the squeeze to try to get everything on a baseline because on paper it looks great, but in, in the real world, it never fully commit. Like, oh, is that just a waste of time? Hold on, James. I was I was promised a world where everything was multi-cloud. You could deploy it to any cloud you'd like, wherever the benefits were. And uh, wh- where is that exactly? <laughs> well, that's the point. I mean, you see, like development teams, we bring them in. Like, hey, we're dot that shop. You do Node.js. Oh, we got to work to get that all. Like, everybody needs to be this. Everybody needs to be on the same SDLC. Everybody needs to be following all these exact same processes and using the same tools. You know, but Node.js works better in different tools than .NET works better. You know, and but do we spend way too wait? I don't want to say spend. Do we waste too much effort trying to bring everything into one when it's like they're different things? We can be different. We just have to specialize on how do we manage that so that's doing the right thing no matter what they're doing. Yeah, um, that's a great observation. It's a great question. Um, I would say yes. We spend too much time, too much effort, too much money because the perceived benefits, like you called out, James, are like, it's so logical, right? Where you sit there, well, if we all run the same thing, we'll have this economy of scale, we'll have more knowledge, we'll be better, blah, 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 right? And it logically, that seems to hold up. However, realistically, when you start to look at the people, you know, those Node.js developers who you're like, oh, you're going to move over to .NET because that's our standard, that takes time. Are they comfortable with that? Like, how much are you going to lose in them moving forward? Um, you know, similarly with going, okay, we're going to take this off cloud one and put it on cloud two. Um, I've always found sort of the multi-cloud thing, as much as Raf was joking about it, the if all you want is like servers and connectivity and some storage, sure, you know, whatever. Um, all, all general clouds tend to be very similar in, in that delivery. They start to get different in when you go deeper. And companies are like, well, we don't want to go deeper because we don't get locked in. And again, longstanding sort of myth within the industry of like, don't get locked in. Well, what's the cost for that? There's a cost for everything. If you're not making that explicitly and understanding like I am willing to lose X amount of benefit to have this lack of lock-in. Um, so I think where where the solution potentially lies is thinking of those business units using those different technologies more of like microservices themselves, like a barrier of saying, okay, here's what's expected of you for um, outputs and inputs. Don't really care what you do internally as long as you have those outputs and inputs, but then to put the security spin, here is also the security bar that we expect you to meet. So if you're using whatever tech stack, we expect you to be able to trace a transaction throughout your system so that if there's something malicious, we can see what's going on. How do you achieve that? Doesn't really impact us. We want to know that. We want that outcome. Deliver it how best meets your technology and culture stack as long as you can hit that bar. And I think that is a far more realistic approach. It's really hard to do, though, because you are then trusting that team to be able to deliver at a certain level, um, to be able to demonstrate those things. But again, I think that's probably better than turning around and saying, rip all this working stuff out and then spend a year or two putting all this stuff in to get back to where you were, um, which is worse, I think, than than trying to find a a realistic, here are the bars, please meet them. So wasn't that from an application perspective and why uh, microservices was the future of everything, like APIs are the answer, right? As long as you can have a listener, it doesn't matter what language it's written in, doesn't matter what the backend, whether it's mm-hmm. running on Linux or Windows or whatever. Um, I mean, that, that was the idea. I, I feel like yep. there's been some deviation from that because um, – we're not there, and I'm trying to figure out why. Any insight into that? <laughs> people. It's always people. People's going to be my answer for everything. Um, <laughs> so I think it's interesting. If, if you were, yeah, just remove the people, we're fine. Um, Careful. If you, AI is if listening. you ignore them. <laughs> yes. Well, great. He may be he AI. Just sub me in for someone who looks. Yes. Well, no. If AI was here, it would look better and sound smarter. So that's fine. Um, I, I still get a job for a while. Uh, I think if you remove the micro, so 
people in tech, we get into these arguments about what's better, what's not better, but the fundamental challenge has been there since day one. So when you're building an app, even if it's an old school monolith, you as a developer are making decisions about how to do like functional decomposition, right? How much does one function do versus multiple functions? And then when we started getting into object oriented, it was the same kind of thing. How do you abstract the objects out? Do you have like just object or like book and then like novel and magazine like these decisions have always been there it's just the implementation has been changing and we've always been generally bad at those decisions it's not new that we're bad at them because you get people over rotate in both ways they go like my function does everything and you're like well that's not maintainable and it's like well it's maintainable by me well that's (laughs) cool you're not (laughs) alone anymore Right. Or the opposite of like, I have functions that are essentially like two lines of code. And you're like, that's not like, why? Why are you doing that? Is it important enough to be its own thing? And they're like, no, but it's super like decomposed and it should be very, very flexible. And you're like, yeah, it's too flexible. It's like, uh, you know, a person with no skeleton. It's not useful. It's now, just a now it's complicated and expensive. Good job. <laughs> Exactly. And so now we just have that implementation when it comes to now we're looking at we have a multi-service architecture across multiple clouds and all this kind of so we just increase the complexity. The same fundamental problem is there. And the answer has always been the same is that you need to look at it for your situation with your team skills, with your business goals, because all of the answers have a cost, whether it's in time or money. What are you willing to pay? And where you see with some companies where they have a massive amount of people, they're like, great, we're okay building all our own tooling because we've got the people to do it. And where they get into trouble is when those people are no longer around or they want to do something else and the people are now a constrained resource. Similarly with the cash, right? I'll just buy a tool that does it. Time to get tight. And you're like, I can't afford this $2 million a year bill. Now I need to build it. And you're like, well, okay, well, now things have changed. You base the decision on one factor that's now a, a constrained resource. And again, it comes back to our initial talk. You need to be updating relatively consistently and understand what the key business is and what you're trying to move forward. And it's not technology. Technology delivers your business. And you need to make sure it's flexible enough to get the business goals, not just the technology. Raph, that so, sounds a lot like the uh, your your argument all the time of do I have a sock in house or do I take a sock out of the house, right? Hundred like, percent. It's it's exactly yeah. that same thing. And uh, I was going to say on the microservices Absolutely. piece, you know, one of the big problems or challenges I think people see with microservices is versioning, right? Like, oh, I updated mm-hmm. a version of this endpoint. How does everybody that consumes that now? Like, that's one of the biggest challenges: naming and broke. versioning. Uh, you know, of, of how we do that. And I, I just want to add real quick, Raph, uh, your point about lock-in, you know, like everybody's afraid of locking in. Like, I don't want to get locked into this vendor, but how many times over the years, Raph, have we talked about breaches of major vendors, you know? And it's like, nobody's going to leave that because it costs too much money yeah. to switch vendors. Really so is. we're at this dilemma of, I don't want to go deep enough to lock in, but I am deep enough that there's no way I'm leaving, you know, unless yeah. the whole business just completely collapses because it already cost me too much, you know, but it's, it's just that mental attitude of, I don't want to feel like I'm locked into that, that one thing, right. Cause we've gone that deep, but I'm missing out on everything that's being applied there just because of in my head. And, and look, the, the reality mm-hmm. is we'd where I think we've all wanted to get to is, this Indian enterprise, the security organization sets a policy and says, we, these are the guardrails. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is this is the minimum standards you must you have. We don't care what endpoint tool you have, but you have to be able to do that, 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 that. And that that's fine and dandy. Where it gets ugly is a devil's always in the details, right? And so um, ha- having been at this type of situation where the global security elite, not CISO, but security elite way, way back – was like okay every uh, every uh, personal every device right so every device that has a Windows or a Mac OS operation has to have an endpoint t- tool on it. You're like okay at the time it was AV so we're like all right cool, um, and so like well we don't care what it is as long as it meet, has the ability to update it has a basic firewalling capability it can detect you know block and remove and like cool so. We didn't have an edict that said thou shalt buy McAfee, Trend, uh, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we had all of them. And then it came down to like, hey, it's response time. Somebody's got to do something. And you're like, cool. 
the problems aren't localized, unfortunately, in security to the one unit that's got like vendor A running. So you can write run that script or run that tool. Mm-hmm. It would be horizontally because you know flat networks. And even if you think you've got no flat network, you have a flat you you flatish. Pretty much everybody. Uh, we still haven't figured out segmentation, and I and I was promised that in the nineties. Um, but <laughs> right, but the problem mm-hmm. the, the problems that we end up with is. We have an adversary got into the environment. It started it at the receptionist uh, was on you know his Mac um, hit the admin. She was on a, a Linux machine. Got to AWS through a private connection. Got over to uh, Azure where the database was and exfiltrated out that way. You're like, okay, great. How do I trace that connect, that connectivity? How do I trace that path? It's like, well. I'll tab, I'll tab, I'll tab, I'll tab, I'll tab. Here's some data. I'll tab, I'll tab, I'll tab. Here's some data. Let's like stitch. There, there. I'm a platforms guy. Like I love companies that build platforms mainly for this reason because you're right. You're not going to solve 100, mm-hmm. but boy, I'd like to get to like 85, maybe one day. Mm-hmm. Because when you have this case I just illustrated, it can't be up to the security team to stitch all these disparate things together. God help you. None of them are ever time synced for some reason ever. Um, at least not correctly. When milliseconds count, you've got problems. Yep. And I swear to God, if anybody uh, messages me and says the same is the answer, I will stab you because it's not. <laughs> it's never yep. been because we haven't figured that out yet. So the, 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 this, like, while we know the reality is disparate tool sets at these massive mm-hmm. scales, that is mm-hmm. – mm-hmm both a, a strength because each business can adapt to its needs and costs and environments, but it's also a downfall because nothing actually works together. And that's where the last 25 years of my life have yeah. been like, why can't, why can't we figure this out? Cause that's where scale breaks security. It, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting though, because even in your description, there is a bunch of decisions that could be made and technologies that could help. And I think what you're getting at is the the additional challenges of making decisions at, as a group and at the appropriate level. So that scenario that you just wa- that you just walked through, totally legit. I think we've all seen it a bunch of different times. And you know, unfortunately, and it's just different flavor over the last 30 years and you're like, you know, what have we done with our lives? Um, but the the yeah we can just wait and reflect on that one for a minute, but you know, okay. Uh, the um, the question ends up being then: Is the cost of your time as a security responder worth more, or has this happened frequently enough that the cost to invest to unify the tool is worth the investment? Right? There's all no, there's numbers you can put to all of it and figure out where you want to spend the time and money as a company. And if you sit there and go, okay, like in your scenario, you identified a few different things. You could have the same endpoint on all of them. You could have uh, like a data lake or a sim or something to cor- correlate all the data underneath. You could do better network segmentation, um, or you could just brute force it with with the analysts, or you could do any combination thereof. And so the question ends being is. Each of those decisions are made by a different team from a very different perspective. And I think this is where we fall down, is that nobody at the higher level sits there like the CISO, the CTO, the CIO, and the CEO, and the CFO aren't sitting down and saying, okay, here's the scenario Raft just laid out. Where do we want to spend the money? Do we want to spread it out and do everything a little bit better? Do we want to invest in the segmentation project? Do we want to unify? Like all of those would... All of those investments would help make it better for a response. Not perfect, but they get you to your 80. Any one of those, a heavy investment in any one of those four would get you to your 80%. The problem is it needs to be made at that high level because everyone's taking a hit. If you say we're all going to unify the endpoint, every one of those teams now needs to re-roll their standard image. They need to do this. And they will be like, no, we're not doing it. It sucks. We're not getting a benefit from it. So this is one of those areas. I'm a big believer in decisions being made low, but this is one of those areas where it needs to be made from up top and saying, Raf, you're going to eat it. James, you're going to deal with it because Mark's team gets the benefit and that's better to the business. So this. Right. And that's, that's the fall. That's the pitfall. So you just said it. And and, and this is the bane of everybody's existence because even in, even in um, kind of the, the the general ideal scenario where the CISO is part of the executive suite and it has decisioning power and mm-hmm. has has ability to make decisions, even if they are taken seriously, which is happening more and more and more, you're right. It is the 
CISO saying, I need because of, it's not the CFO, because an issue like network segmentation isn't made by a CISO. It's made by a CIO, right? It's a technology decision. It's not a security decision. Um, (laughs) Uniform uniform global technology rollout, like all have the same endpoint. That's a CFO decision, right? Because that's got to be like, hey, guys, this is going to be ultimately cheaper for us. Like the pain is harder at the beginning, but long-term we've got, you know, we've got better options. Um, yeah. So oh, Mark froze on us again. Nope. And he'll be back in a second. <laughs> <laughs> he was agreeing so hard that uh, he fell off. Yeah. It was too much bandwidth going through and that's what. Uh, I've lost you. Hopefully you're down. coming back up in a sec. This is so James, this is, this is exactly the, like where I was hoping this conversation would go. And, um, and then, I, I lost you for a second there. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're back. That's fine. Uh, all we got was Mark okay, good. smiling at us, which is which is fine. Um, <laughs> I, I love Steel. Yeah, yeah, that's you, fine. You, you've got one of the you've got one of the, the smileier faces, so I, I, I'm okay with that. But no, right um, good. We we just I mean like this is this is really in in 25 30 years of evolution in our industry, which is in the grand scheme of things a, a, you know, a grain of sand on a beach, right? Um, Yep. Yeah, yeah. What I think the biggest evolution and the biggest realization is that we've had because of massive scale requirements uh, and some of these massive global mm-hmm. companies is that the lesson learned is security is a, a, a truly a stakeholder problem that's horizontal across the leadership organization. Um, yep. And, and holding one person, even giving one person like veto power doesn't solve the problem. Um no. And having uh, like the requirement in, in New York State where it's like, oh, you have to have your board. Somebody on your board has to be security knowledgeable. You're like, that doesn't solve anything. That just means one guy's going to be going, uh, hey, excuse me, uh, none of that works. And the other rest of them are going to be going, yeah, but it's too expensive. You shut up over there. Like that doesn't that doesn't solve mm-hmm. the thing. So it really is a, uh, a, a, a and I got to say this, like it's going to be. This isn't going to get better overnight. We're going to have to continue going through pain, and I think the, I think that the path is uh, being tread well. In that we are, there's accountability. There's the tough questions being asked, like, okay, who knew about this? How was this decision made? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. And I think we will eventually get to in, in a couple of generations of, of leaders in business. Uh, and Hoff said it best, like these decisions will get better when we're dead. Like it's going to take us getting cycled out of this. It, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, he said this ages ago. No, we were talking will. about clouds. Like, how long before do you think mm-hmm. the company's going to go to cloud? He's like, when we're all dead, like when we're all out of this industry and the kids that grew yeah. up, you know, with streaming, like they don't, they never used that the actual television by changing channels. Never mind turning mm-hmm. the knob. Um, right. The ones that didn't go up with Saturday morning cartoons. Cause you got cartoons on demand on YouTube all the time. But it, it, the, yeah. the new generations that grow up with new tech, that grow up with that new mindset, we can only fix it at their level when we educate them and bring them up because the rest of us mm-hmm. are already sitting here. And I don't know that you can try, but we're, we're hard to fix. Well, let, let me give you one that's will probably you know reinforce what you just said. But how many of us sort of the old guard are comfortable with clearly articulating a risk and the rest of the business just saying, okay, that's fine. We'll live with it. Yeah. Like objectively, we all teach that. And we say, you know, if you've clearly laid out the risk and say, you know, if we don't run the same endpoint across all of them, we are unable to properly respond to incidents. I need an investment of 10 million in order to do this, whatever. And the rest of the leaders are like, no, we're okay with that risk. And from our jobs, like when you look at the textbook definition, you're like, great, we did our jobs. We explained the risk. We told them the trade-off and the rest of the business have done that. Most of us just freak out and like, what do you know? We have to do it. We have to do it. We have to do it. But honestly, that's a legitimate decision. Now, that's the extreme decision. But if you look at some of the proposed regulation, uh, you know, in the, in the States with you guys, the a lot of it requires you just to have documented a thought out discussion yeah. and decision based on that yeah. discussion. It doesn't say you must do this. It says you have to talk about it, figure out what makes the most sense balancing these things for your business and go forward. And as much as we can objectively talk about that, I think... For those of us who have been in it long enough, it makes us 
deeply uncomfortable <laughs> to be like, you're accepting that risk. That's a horrible risk. You shouldn't accept that. We can fix that. We can fix that easily. But the business is like, cool, we're not making that investment. Right. And that's okay. I was, Even if it's not okay with us, that's okay. I, I've been saying that for a long time on the AppSec side, you know, like I'm not the no person of you can't push that out. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like I can give you the risk that that has, but it's a group effort. There's people that know the business better than I do. There's people that know the costs and the financials of, hey, if we don't push this for a month, what's that cost us versus the risk of putting that one item out there? You know, and so to that point, even at the executive level, it's that same idea. Like security should not be the decision maker for your enterprise architecture. They should not be the decision maker of if you choose that one versus this one. We're here to look at it and say, okay, this is the one you want to go with. Here's the risks that are around that. Here's what that could cost us if we don't do it a different way or if we do it this mm-hmm. way but i think right to your point right like it won't change until we're all dead it's because there's a misconception on both sides of this whole CISO wants a seat at the table i hate the seat at the table i hate the taken seriously but you know the the idea here is that oh everything will be fixed if we can get the CISO at the executive level and a seat at the table because now they'll listen to everything we say but our goal is not to be listened to to make those decisions it's I just want to be able to make sure that the risks that I'm identifying, you are seeing yeah. and taking those. And on the same, yep. on the flip side, yeah. right, it's the idea that, hey, we have to work with the CFO. We have to work with these other groups to to let them bring their input, right? But they don't know that either. Like, they don't realize yeah. that their input matters on security decisions because everybody pushes it as, oh, well, that's a security thing. You don't know anything about it. You know, like, well, CFO, you don't know security. Like, what do you know? You know, like they don't take all that stuff into account. So on both sides, that needs to change. And you're probably right. You know, mm-hmm. until the the current generation of people phase out bo- on both sides. Right. I'm yeah. talking on the CFO. I, I think, it, I think at least sides. one or two. Yeah. I think at least one side. or two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because James, the way you explained it is very much the way I look at it. I always kind of think of like as security, I've got like a couple tickets I can use to actually get something done because you're right. It's not our role to say like, no, except in very extreme circumstances. Same with like a lawyer, right? The lawyer, a lawyer is easier to understand. Ironically, a legal counsel in your business shouldn't tell you no, except in very specific circumstances. If you are about to break a like criminal law, they should tell you, no, you can't do this and you should not do it. If they are the rest of the time, they are saying, you know, well, here's the risk, right? Then you evaluate that risk. Same with PR, same with HR, same with finance, right? Like, sure, you can over leverage on this thing, but you could lose all the money. And here's the impact of that. And then you need to make a decision. And so for security, it's similar where we have boundaries of like, you know, you cannot run everything exposed to the internet. You need to put something in place. That's a that's a hill you should definitely put a flag in and say, look, we're not crossing this line. <laughs> but the other areas, you need to realize that you know security is one of the business decision factors. It's not the decision factor. And you know the parallel to go back to the original part of the conversation with junior developers, I always evilly like watching junior devs in the first few months as they realize like not all bugs will get fixed, <laughs> and they're like, but it's broken and we can fix it. And it's like, yeah, it's not important. They're like, but it's broken. Yes. Both those things can be true. It can be broken. It can be fixable. It also can be a third thing, not important enough to deal with. And we will move forward because there are other things that we need to focus our resources on. And obviously, in a utopia, we do everything all the time. It's not where we are. So you need to make these decisions. And I think what we need to aim for to get away from that, we need a seat at the table, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. We just need to get people to understand that it's security is a part of the decision process and we need to make sure that we in the community are positioning it that way and providing the information to make an informed decision what that decision is we'll see depends on how well we do that job and not everybody you know there's this i don't know i feel like from the security side right there's this idea that we are experts right like hey i'm a security person i must be an enterprise architect i'm an expert at it because i'm that plus security right but i'm not an enterprise Mm -hmm. architect you know, I, I don't know that stuff to that level that they have and how that's all going to piece together. I'm looking at it from a what are the risks that this will this will create? You know, I don't know full administration of how the tool works and how we're going to do this and how that's going to affect that. And I, I think there's too little reliance on those other teams to be able to say, look, I trust the enterprise architect. They know what they're doing. 
you know, you want to do it? Let me show you the risks that are. And I had this with a dev team years ago. They were trying to architect something and they're like, well, listen, if you know how you want to architect it, just tell us how to architect. I'm like, I'm not here to be your architect, right? I'm here for you to architect it. I'm just giving you the risk so that way we can implement your architecture. That's it. You know, like, I, but I'm not here to architect it for you. If I want to be an architect, I'd be an architect, Mm -hmm. you know, and that actually changed a big dynamic between how the dev team and the AppSec team worked was because that realization of, okay, I'm I'm not here to tell you how to do it. I want to look at how you're doing it and just say, hey, you know, a seatbelt there would actually be really nice so we don't go flying through the window. You know, like, great. I love the design of the car, but I'm going to fall out. You know, like little things like that. It's not you can't you can't create the car because there's too much risk to it. There's risk to everything, you know, but getting that understanding on both sides that we're not experts on every minute detail of your side of the fence. This is this is our yeah. goal, and when people start understanding that, they get a lot better at collaborating. I feel. Yeah, well said. Very well said. All right, guys. I think uh, I think we've run out of time uh, like ten minutes ago, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> we started. This late. has been fun, Mark. Mark, it's great having you on the show. We got to go. Uh, got to have you back uh, more often than like three hundred episodes or something. Yeah, I appreciate it. And it's always a great, uh, great conversation. And yeah, we'll, we'll do it again real soon. All right, you guys, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been yet another edition of the Down to Security Rabbit Hole podcast. Mark Unikoven has been my guest and uh, we have uh, meandered through a lot, but mostly around the scale of security. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Mark, thanks for your time, buddy. We'll see you again, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys another time, another place on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. Cue the music. We're out. See ya. Bye-bye. As we fade out on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole episode, we'd like to encourage you to chat with our hosts and guests using the Twitter hashtag pound DTSR. Please check out the show notes, catch up on any episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. So on behalf of Rafal, James, for now it's goodbye. We'll see you soon on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast.